0: Philemon, chapter 1, verse 8 through 21. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner, also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. But how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord? So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. Amen.
1: Well, good morning. This time the kids are dismissed for Children's Church. I'm going to invite you to open in your Bibles to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2, we gonna be looking at verses 9 and 10 this morning. Well, as we look at these verses here we, we look and we 're going to look at bond servants and what they have to do to help us. Um, give me one second, sorry, my notes are messing up on me. This would happen, and so as we look at titus chapter two we 're talking about bond servants. And as we look at these verses, it's easy to maybe look at something like a bondservant, something that we don't even have today, let alone none of us would fit that category because none of us are anyone's bondservant, and think, what does this have to teach me? What does this have to say to me today? And I think as we look at this, we have to remember that this is in the context of 10 other verses that we have been reading through, Titus chapter two, one through 10, is talking about the household and everybody who's a part of that household, which includes these bondservants. And as we've seen in every list so far, whether that was a list to pastors, a list to younger uh, men and younger women, older men, older women, whoever that might be, that there's something to glean for everybody and that there's something to be, to be brought out in all of this. And so what we see is that bondservants in particular have the ability and the joy to bring glory to God. They adorn the doctrine of God our Savior, is how this thing ends at the very last part of this verse. But how they do that is kind of surprising. See, for a lot of us, when we think about like what adorns something, what brings something glory and honor, we think of something that's really, really great. We think of national championships in in ohio state football we think of of doing something really really well we you know you're winning the voice or something like that that brings you honor and glory but what brings honor and glory to the lord in this passage isn't accomplishment it isn't performance it's not taking charge and even having authority it's actually the opposite what's really surprising is what brings honor and glory to god what adorns the doctrine of god our savior is submission is these bondservants submit to their masters, and in submitting to their masters, they bring God glory and honor. And as we look at that this morning, I want us to look at this strange thing that's very countercultural. What does it look like to bring God glory through submitting to the authority that God has placed in my life? And so with that, let's go ahead and take a look at Titus chapter two, verses nine and 10. It says this bondservants, are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray that as we walk through these verses uh, this morning, that we see the glory in submission. We see that bringing you honor and glory in this life looks different than what it looks like to bring glory to our culture and to our world and particularly to ourselves. We want to, as, as human beings, we naturally want to rise and, and become glorious in of ourselves, but God, we are made and created to reflect glory back to you instead. Help us do that well as we walk through these verses and learn about what it means to be submissive for the glory of God. I ask this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I want us to take a look at these verses. It's just two verses, and we'll walk through them. Before we jump in, I want us to look at that word bondservants. It's not a word that you probably hear ever in our culture. I only hear it when I study the Bible. It's an interesting kind of word in of itself. Actually, the Greek word is doulos, and doulos means very literally slave, and the ESV, so the translation that we typically use here on Sunday mornings, uh, when you read their, their preface notes to, to, this, to the, the EFC, ESV Bible, you'll actually find in the very beginning of those notes that they talk about this word in the New Testament of doulos because it gets translated three different ways when they translate it into English. And they do that really intentionally. They do that because they know that their readers are Americans in the 21st century. And they know that the word slave in particular— holds a connotation to it that isn't necessarily accurate of what the Bible is trying to communicate in those particular places. And so they've used actually three different words for that same Greek term all throughout the New Testament. So one, they do sometimes translate it as slave, which would be the most literal translation. And they do that when they're trying to convey a total and complete ownership of something. So we can think of an example of that in, in the ESV would be in Romans chapter 6. In Romans chapter 6, we are told that we, before we become Christians, Christians, Christians are slaves to sin. They were completely mastered by sin. That that without Jesus, we have no hope, and that's a total and complete, domineering, authoritative kind of mastery over us. And so they use that word slave there. They also see, like here in Titus chapter one, verse one, Paul says, Paul a servant of God. He actually uses the Greek word doulos there, which could be Paul, a slave of God. But he's trying to communicate that there's a little more freedom in serving God there. They're trying to help us see that, that the connotation in the first century with that word, it's just different. It doesn't have all the baggage that it holds for us today. And then that third way they do that is bond servant. because in Rome, in the Roman world, there was a particular category of people that would enter into a contractual agreement, with somebody. So usually maybe somebody who's poorer would enter into this contractual agreement with somebody who's richer, and typically that agreement would last seven years. And for that seven years, that person would not be paid for their labor, and they would be a slave of the house. They would be owned in a part of the household, and they would serve in that capacity. But then at the end of that seven years, they would not only be set free, but they would usually be paid for that seven years of labor. And so in some ways, you can think of one of the most difficult things for people in poverty, even in America, today is it's really hard to ever accrue any kind of meaningful savings because you're constantly just trying to make ends meet. What this system allows is for people who are really poor to take a time in their life where the, the ends are being met for a time and then they're able to have a lump sum at the end. Now, as I say that, we often think of slavery and, and what comes into it is the horrible, despicable chattel slavery of the 19th century. And ethnic-based slavery where people are literally kidnapped, something in the Bible that's explicitly forbidden, that people are never to be kidnapped for the sake of slavery. It's things that are totally ethnically based, which is also forbidden in the Old Testament. Everything about 19th century slavery in America is actually explicitly forbidden in the scriptures. But we have to look, and we have to know, and we have to own, even in our denomination, even in people around us, we use passages like this to justify a sinful practice. That sinful practice of slavery. That the Bible gets it right. It was us in our interpretation of the Bible that got it wrong. And that gets motivated by things within us, like greed. Like it's really good to have free labor for a really long time. And so that motivates that in early America. It made America competitive economically throughout the world, that they got to have labor that was free. But I would also want to say this, and these are just little points that we have to look at, because we, we have to look, because at the same time, while a bond servant is different than chattel slavery, it's not necessarily great either, right? Let me put it this way. No little boy or little girl in Roman culture thought, man, one day when I grow up, I want to be a bond servant right? No moms and dads went to their kids and say, son, I got big dreams for you. One day you're going to be somebody's bond servant, right? It's not a great situation. And while at the same time to say they entered it willingly, it is kind of a loose term of willingly, right? They entered these, these agreements because they were incredibly impoverished or because Rome swept in and took over their country, took away their liberties and their freedoms, and now they were forced into these contractual agreements, there are things like that that are happening that this isn't a wonderful kind of scenario either. So while it's different than what we might think of in slavery, it's still not great. And so we have to ask a really hard question. Is the Bible condoning a bad practice? Is the Bible saying that image bearers of God are allowed to be owned by other people? Even in just a seven-year stint, And I want to say, no. I think we have to look at the breadth of the scriptures, by and large, and what they are saying, and that we have to keep the main thing the main thing, and I think Paul is actually trying to teach something else in this moment, and there's other passages in the New Testament that help us see that it's really not the ideal to have slaves be known. That's why I picked Philemon to be the scripture reading this morning. Because that helps us see that Paul is using his position and he's leveraging things to see Onesimus become free, even though he was a slave. But that the Bible is teaching something else. Because we have to ask these things because it's really hard. Because we have this isn't the only place. We can't just be like, well, this just comes up with Titus and I'll scoop it over the wrong. But the same thing gets commanded in Ephesians, in Colossians, 1 Timothy. So what do we do? What do we do with these passages? And I would suggest this. When we interpret Scripture... We need to think of it like a fine meal, right? Like when you eat a really, really good meal, there is clearly a main course. There's the main thing that you're supposed to be enjoying. And then there's all these side dishes off to the side. Now, in a really, really good meal, side dishes make the main course even better. They highlight it and they point to it so what we want to do is we interpret scripture. We want to look and say, what is the main course? And then now how do I deal with these side dishes? Which is like, how do I deal with things like a bondservant? Because I want to say this. In the book of Titus, what we have seen through chapter 1 and now halfway through chapter 2, there's a main course. And that main course goes to what we said at the very beginning, that Paul's purpose in life was what? To preach a gospel in such a way for the sake of God's people that their knowledge of the truth would accord with godliness and that godliness would lead to the glorification of God. That's what he's trying to say. And then he's having this section, so whether you are old, young, male, female, or even a slave, the point of your life, the main course of it all, is that you live a godly life that brings God honor and glory. I want to say that's the main course. The main course isn't what Paul's trying to write about is what to do about bond servitude and slavery. The point is to these people who are Christians, how are they supposed to live in the midst of this difficult circumstance? And Paul is saying in the midst of your really difficult circumstance, live in such a way that you adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. That's what we want to see. That that's the breath, but... The good news is there are side dishes. And the Bible is talking to us, so what does this look like? And I think there's some other passages of Scripture that can help us. One is when Paul writes to the church in Corinth, and when he talks to bond servants as well. And he says, were you a bond servant when called? 1 Corinthians 7. Do not be concerned about it, but if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who has called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who is free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You who are bought with a price do not become... Sorry, my uh, slides keep messing up here. Are they doing it there too? Bummer. Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, let him remain with God. Right? So he's teaching these Corinthian bond servants, listen, if you have the opportunity to improve your life, you have the opportunity to become free, go and be free. But he's setting it in the context of what's main, the eternal context. Listen, when you're in Christ, you're already declared free. And listen, you freed men, when you're in Christ, you're already declared a servant of God, a slave of God. So what we see is that what our founding and our grounding in Jesus needs to be the centrality of our identity. And then what he's teaching to these bond servants, to these people, is, listen, being a bond servant, it doesn't define you. It's not who you are. Who you are as a son of God. And yeah, if you have the opportunity, be free. And then we see in Philemon, what happens in this letter is Paul is writing to a na- man named Philemon who, who owned a bond servant named Onesimus. And Onesimus escaped from Philemon, which was illegal to do and even punishable by death. He ran away from Philemon, his owner, but while he did that, he meets up with Paul while Paul's in prison, and he starts serving Paul, because the prison system there is a lot different than ours, and so your needs and everyday things would have to be met by somebody outside of prison. And Onesimus starts to serve Paul, because Onesimus becomes a Christian. And Paul writes this letter back to Philemon, and he basically says, hey, you know how he owns you these years of service? He's been, count his time served to me as time served to you. And he tries to leverage his position with Philemon, and he says this, for perhaps this is why he was parted for you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you will receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. To say nothing of your owing to me, even for your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Paul is like leveraging his own ability and what he's saying there to do. He, he, he's saying, listen, everything that Onesimus owes you, I know he's in this con- contractual agreement, put it on my tab. Oh no, by the way, finally, if it wasn't for me, you'd go to hell. So right? Like, that's what he's saying. Like, just remember, you owe your own self to me and my ministry and what we did. So just, just remember that if we're keeping track of IOUs. And I want you to receive back Onesimus. See, what Paul could have done was to say, Onesimus, man, this is, this is wrong. This is the bad thing to do. Philemon shouldn't be owning you like that. You're my guy. You've been doing a great thing for me. So how about you just stay here? Don't be running back to Philemon. Don't do that. But he doesn't. See, the gospel way is to bring both of these parties together, it's to bring them to say that the Lord is, is, is reconciling these relationships. And so that's the way that the gospel handles slavery. And, and we actually even see that when it comes to that horrific act of slavery. America was behind the ball. We were way behind the ball on that. But it was Christians in other countries. You can think of people like William Wilberforce, if you want to go and look that up. We don't have a ton of time to look that up or talk about that right now. That led the way in freeing in ending the transatlantic slave trade. And in fact, it's only where Christianity has taken root that slavery is basically no longer in existence here now in today's world. That all over the world, these things like owning human beings are still happening. It's only where the faith that says everybody is made in the image of God, that slavery is legally eradicated. And that's what we get to say as Christians. And we get to show that. But I do think as we deal with these passages, we have to see... That we want to keep the main thing, the main thing. That this is what we want to do as we look to this. So as we do that, there are just eight things. I'm just going to list them off. Eight things that I want to say, side dishes, if you will, to take from this passage and what we've talked about when we talk about bond servants. Number one. Our chief aim is to glorify God no matter our circumstance or position. So that's the main dish, right? Our chief aim is to glorify God no matter our position. Is it changing back? No, it's not. Two, sorry, it's changing on me, and that's where these things are written. (laughs) So I can't read them. The Bible tells us how to live a godly life. Did it again. Abandoned. Steve, can you drive for me back there? All right, I'm going to let you take over. I'm going to move to a different note. I have a backup. The Bible tells us how to live a godly life in the midst of broken systems, not how to specifically navigate those systems. Right? So, what I'm saying there is that the Bible sometimes just tells us, here's how you live in a godly way, not here's how the world gets fixed. Sometimes we just need to concentrate on how we are to live a godly life. Three, we can seek better circumstances, but even this we do unto the Lord. Four, we are to use our position for the good of others, like Paul did for Philemon. Five, we are served joyfully regardless of our position. Six, Christians in lower socioeconomic positions are equally unified with Christ, bought with the same price in the blood of Jesus. Seven, Christians in, so- in lower socioeconomic positions have the dignity to obey Christ in the exact same ways as Christians of higher socioeconomic positions. See, when we go to people who have harder circumstances to, than than we might have, and we say, you don't have to obey Jesus in the same way that I have to obey Jesus, we are insulting their dignity. They have the dignity, they have just as much right to obedience as you do. So Paul, when he writes to older men who maybe had influence and the ability to obey he also writes to these bond servants and he says you're new in jesus and so the expectations are the same your brothers together jesus brings dignity and he brings it through obedience to him and finally this paul writes to the old young male female into the poor because all are a part of the people of god The fact that bondservants get instructions, the fact that they get something directly from the apostle shows that they are intrinsically valuable. That who they are as image bearers gives them dignity and value, even though their society did not give that to them. Christians didn't look at bondservants and think they weren't worth sharing the gospel with. Christians looked at bond servants and said they are image bearers of a living God who have to stand before the same God and give an account for their sin just like I do. Therefore, listen to this good news of the gospel. Repent, for the kingdom is near. And before God, your position in this world will mean nothing. And that's good news for all of us, rich or poor or in between. That Paul is saying that everybody has the ability to be part of the people of God. See, Paul includes bondservants in his instructions and to the household because he includes everyone. Therefore, everyone has something to learn from these instructions. Everybody has something to glean. And so as we transition to this next point here, I pray that we glean this, that there is godliness in submission. As we look at verse 9 and the beginning of verse 10. So, bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith. So, So that in everything we may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. So, as we look at that there, what does it look like? What does it mean to be submissive? Well, we can see there that Paul gives four things that it means. One positive, two negative, and then another positive one. And he does that on purpose. He gives them structure it's to make it so it's easier to memorize and understand because these letters have just been read orally to these people. They don't necessarily have a printing press in the first century, and so you can't turn it open and read it for yourself. And so he does that so that these people can listen to that and they can remember what it means to do this. And so the first one is to be well-pleasing. That's what we want to see. That, that, that we, as, as when we're submissive to people, that we're well-pleasing, that we seek the good of those we're submitting to. You can ask this, this simple question. Would you want to lead you? Now, when I say that, I don't mean the idealistic version of you that we all think we are. When I say that, I don't mean you thinking, well, I would just be such a great leader. Of course I would want to lead me because if I was leading, everything would be so amazing and great all the time that all the people would be joyous to follow me. I got news for you. Leading is really, really hard. I've had the, the joy and the difficulty of leading, whether that is in, in a warehouse, on a sales team, and now in a church. Leading is hard, and nobody does it perfectly, and everybody has something to complain about when you're leading. And that's my question. When you lead, whether, or, or when you follow people, are you a joy? Do the leaders in your life look to you and think, that is somebody I can count on. They're dependable, they're there. And not only are they dependable, but man, they like just go the extra mile. They care about me as a leader. That's what Christians are supposed to be. That's what it looks like when we say we're gonna adorn the doctrine of God. Do you stand out in that kind of way? In Ephesians uh, chapter six, verses five through eight, This is this, bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this will receive him back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or whether he is free. We got to be serving from the heart, not just when people are looking. That's what it means to be well pleasing. Do you bring joy to the people that lead you? Are you not argumentative? A lot of of, of uh, translations actually translate this as you don't talk back, right? We can all think of maybe teenagers, right? They're the worst of that. They always talk back. I have news for you: three year olds are also pretty bad at it as well, right? They always have something to say, something to, to argue with, like just do what you're supposed to do, right? Well, that's what we're going to do. But that's what that looks like. And I would even suggest, again, even when no one's looking, Proverbs 16:27 through 28, a worthless man plots evil and his speech is like a scorching fire. A dishonest man spreads strife and a whisper separates close friends. I've been around a lot of church cultures where after the church on Sunday, you go and have lunch and all then it is, is a complaint about how everything should be better. I've been there. I've sat around those tables. I've participated in the conversation. Whether it's at church or at work, everybody knows it happens at the water cooler. You complain about the person who charge, no matter who they were. I've seen people get promoted, and they went from being friends to all of a sudden they're the person everybody wants to gossip about and slander. Talk bad on them. Because there's something within us as human beings that we hate submitting. So the moment we have authority, we want to just kind of fight back that authority every chance we get particularly when no one's around. We all want to talk bad on our boss, on our leaders, whoever that might be. It makes camaraderie amongst the other people that we're working with to to, to stick it to the man in any way that we can. But the Bible tells us to do this in such a way that we're not argumentative, that we don't talk back, that we're not spreading strife, that that's what that looks like. The next thing he does, he tells them to not be pilfering. Don't steal stuff. Now that might seem really obvious, but listen, it is really tempting to steal when you're being mistreated, it's really tempting to steal when you are, feel like you're being undercompensated. Listen, they give me grief. They treat me badly. So what? I stole a little extra time. It's just five minutes. It's just ten minutes. You know, the way they treated me, I deserve that, that extra little bit. I don't care whose pens the, uh, these, uh, they are. You know how much they mess with me? I'm taking them home. This is my stapler now, right? And it might be the smallest of things. Or it may be the temptation of somebody who's poor and impoverished, who's entered into bond servitude, not as willingly as we might want to make out. And they look and they say, man, these people, they have so much stuff. They would never notice if I just stole this over here. And then maybe I can go and sell that and buy myself out of this terrible situation. Isn't that what God would want for me? He doesn't want me to be a slave. And Paul's saying, no, don't be pilfering. And trust yourself even to unjust and imperfect masters. And even in our society. And trust yourself to the Lord. If we can change our circumstance, if we can change our position, 1 Corinthians 7, go for it. But don't do that at the expense of your integrity. Your integrity, your godliness is not worth the elevation of status or the change in economic position, and the final thing he tells bond servants to do is that they are to show faith in all things, or showing all good faith. This is probably this is kind of a pretty wooden translation. I like to preach from the ESV because it really tries to get it literal. It might have be more helpful to loosen it up a little bit and, and, and understand that this is saying in utter faithfulness, or another way to say this is in loyalty. So it's the same word that we get translated earlier we were talking about children being believing. We're talking about how that word pistos could also mean faithful, faithful to their parents, faithful to them because after all, no pastor, as good as he might be, can force his kid to become a Christian. That's not how it works. They have to come to Jesus on their own. But we, what we wanna see in that is even with, with bondservants, so that same kind of intent of the word that they're not believing all in all good things, but they're being faithful. They're being loyal, right? Again, they're loyal when no one's looking. They're doing the right thing all the time. Colossians 3, 22 through 24 tells us this, bond servants obey in everything that those, for those of you who have earthly masters, not be a way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart. This looks a lot like the passage in Ephesians. Fearing the Lord, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will see the inheritance as your reward. You are receiving the Lord Christ. It is so easy when we get stuck in maybe mundane jobs, the jobs that we didn't want, the job that you didn't think about when you were a kid like, oh, when I grew up, I want to do this. We get stuck in those positions and we can think, I'm just working for myself or what we're doing. And we don't work with all that we are. We don't work with utter faithfulness. We're not super loyal. We're not giving it all we have. And what Colossians is telling us is work heartily, work as if you're working unto the Lord. That's what we want to do. As if Christ is there with you, because knowing that even ordinary labor brings about good in this world. It was hard for me in my days of UPS, scanning boxes. I didn't understand what I was doing. But, you know, I had to remind myself, we're we're sometimes moving medicine. We're sometimes moving things that are helpful to people. We improve people's lives when we get them packages. And I am just one very, 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 very very tiny cog in this massive wheel. But it's, it's meaningful labor, as hard as it was. And we have to do this unto the glory of God no matter what. I mean, the reality is, is when we think of Roman culture in the American culture, we don't think about the bondservants. I haven't seen a movie that's like, bondservant. But we have seen a movie called Gladiator. Right? When we think of Roman society, we want to watch a movie about that. So we will see Russell Crowe decked out in armor, muscles ripped, and, and he's the general of an army. And when things go bad, he doesn't become anybody's bond servant. He becomes a gladiator and he's awesome and he kicks everyone's booty. And what does he eventually try to do? Cause an uprising. And we're like, woo, Russell Crowe. That's what we want. That's what we want to be. That's what we celebrate in our culture. But then we read the Bible and it just like socks us in the mouth because you have Jacob and he's a little brother he's not supposed to one that has the birthright and he's this little liar that he just gets his way but god is with him all the way and you have moses who when he's the prince of egypt just flops he doesn't lead god's people it's not until he's a shepherd out cleaning sheep that the lord god almighty appears to him in a burning verse and tells him the walk ground you walk on it's holy you have david The one nobody thinks about. His own dad doesn't bring him to Jesse. Or his his, his own dad, Jesse, doesn't bring him to Samuel. Like, he's so unthought of and uncharacteristic of what a king ought to be that his dad's like, no, 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 go take care of the sheep. I've got these other brothers for you. But it's David who God picks. And what's that setting the stage for? For Jesus. Born lowly in a manger. Nothing about him is impressive, nothing but a stature, the book of Isaiah tells us. He's a man of sorrow, well acquainted with grief. When he describes himself, he says he's gentle and lowly. This is who he is, and he sets the stage. And how does Jesus win the world? Jesus wins the world by humbling himself, by becoming submissive to the Father, to the point of death on the cross, that's the Christian message, that's the gospel. That's why we have to say, listen, our opportunities of servitude and our opportunities of submission are opportunities to adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. And we don't want to waste it. We don't want to miss out on the opportunity to glorify God in the way that our world doesn't get, that we glorify God through submission and trust, not taking life by the horns and putting up our own boots, pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps, that we do it for something else. And so you need to know that God has accomplished something great through your submission. As you plug away in your duty, you adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Because after all, our godliness is for the sake of God's glory. And that's what I want to wrap up with as we just look at these last couple words. So that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. We've seen commands like this in other places in in this text. Right? We've seen this in verse 8, right? when, when older women who are supposed to be training younger women in godliness and then younger women are to live a certain way. And we said, what was the point? So that the word of God would not be reviled. That we see, that's what he's saying. He's like, live a godly life. If you live a godly life, it's, you're going to stand out in this world that the word of God might not be reviled. And then he starts talking to younger men and to Titus. And he, and he goes a little further. Excuse me, that was verse, yeah, verse 5 and then verse 8. Um, and then in verse 8, what does he tell him? When he's talking to Titus and the young men, listen, if you guys live life like this, if you're self-controlled, if you're a model of of good works, Titus, when they come to you, the opponents, they're going to say things and they're going to be put to open shame because everybody's going to know they're not true. They're going to accuse you of stuff and you have lived such a life that is such a model of of what it means to be a a Christ follower that they will be put to open shame. You're going to glorify God. And now he's talking to, to these bond servants and he's telling them the same exact thing. Live your life in such a way. Submit to your masters in everything. Be well-pleasing. Do the things that you, you ought to do when nobody's looking. Don't be argumentative. Watch what you're saying. Don't argue back to your master and don't even talk bad about your master to other people. Don't be argumentative. Don't pilfer. Don't steal. Don't take things from your, from, that don't belong to you. But show good faith in everything instead. And in that, you're going to adorn the doctrine of God. That's what we see. That's what we get to be. That word adornment, it means to to celebrate or to to, to ornament something. You can think of things like, like, earrings, right? That we see other places that, that women are told to adorn themselves in certain ways and to adorn themselves with, with the ways that honor God. And we can think, of when a lady wears accessories, why does she do that? She does that because it adorns her beauty. It it, it makes her, it brings out things about her that are beautiful and wonderful and that's what we're doing. We get to adorn that. Another way to say that would be to be an ornament. That we are an ornament. We're a decoration to God. My, my mom and when, when she was, um, we were growing up as kids, and even into adulthood, each year for Christmas, we would always get an ornament, you know, and as a little kid, I was like, okay, ornament, great, next steps, right, because, like, who gets excited, like, for one, Christmas is already over, like, we can't hang it now, right, but she would do that every year, every year, she would get us an ornament, and, and she would do that, and, um, one of my favorite ones that she she got us, or got Brittany, I'm not really sure, I don't remember who got it, but is of this brunette girl, water skiing. It's one of my favorite ornaments that my mom got us, because now each year when I uh, celebrate Christmas, I get to bring out this little ornament of this brunette girl, water skiing, and it says Brittany, and it has a year on it, it's probably like 2012 or 2013, and it's water skiing. And I remember that was the first summer that I brought Brittany home and she stayed with us for a little bit. We weren't married yet. And she was kind of meeting our family and my family water skis. Everybody water skis. So whether Brittany knew it or not, it was kind of an audition, right? It was kind of this initiation into our family. Can you water ski? And when Brittany's not uh, eight months pregnant, Brittany's really athletic. And so she, she figured it out. She, she water skied, popped right up. And there's this thing now that every Christmas we pull it out and I have this precious memory and it reminds me of this thing. And we put it on our tree. It's, it's, it adorns that memory in my life. I have this precious memory when Brittany really started to become a part of our family and our dating process of what that started to look like. So what's interesting about the ornament is the ornament isn't the memory, right? It's, it just points me to the memory that memory is precious, that memory, I would say, is priceless to me. The ornament probably costs like 10 bucks on Amazon, right? But, but it reminds me of this priceless and wonderful thing. What Paul is saying through these 10 verses, no matter where we fit, as we look at all these lists that we have meticulously gone through in the last couple of weeks, he is saying your life is to be like that ornament. When people look at you, when they see that, they are reminded of the doctrine of God our Savior. It brings that out to them. It's a precious, priceless thing. The the unfathomable riches of God, you get to remind people of that. You are an ornament on the tree of Christianity, and all believers are doing this, and we're decorating the gospel of Jesus with our lives. And that's an amazing thing, that the God of the universe, who hung the stars in place, you want to talk about ornaments, he hung them there in place. And we look at them, and their grandeur, and their beauty, and they remind us of who he is. He has looked at me, and he has looked at you, and he has said, I'm going to use you to display my glory in a way that's even greater than all of creation. Right? Men's study we've been walking through. What is the apex of God's creation? When he creates man and woman. That's what he creates. We are meant to be his image bearers. You look at that, the next time you look at that beautiful landscape, or you go on vacation and you look at the ocean, or whatever it might be, God is saying to you, you, you live a life of godliness. You adorn my doctrine. You adorn the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's what? that. God is our Savior. I mean, that, that is a beautiful phrase there. God, our Savior. Paul is calling out there, and he's saying, yeah, that's right, because that's the God we serve. We serve the God with us. God who left his throne in glory to come and to live here amongst us. he, John tells us, wrapped himself in flesh so that he might dwell or tabernacle amongst us, that he might come and be with us. Because that's what it takes to be the Savior. We say God, our Savior, we're saying God himself, he didn't just snap his fingers and make it all go away. He put on flesh, he lived this life, he became a bondservant to all, even though he is the ruler of all. He humbled himself to created beings like us so that he might win many sons to glory in the cross of Jesus. That if you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, your sin can be forgiven. And not only that, that's amazing enough that you have forgiven sin, that you're made right with God. But that's the unsearchable riches of, of grace in the gospel He's not just saying that. He's also inviting you then to become one of these beautiful ornaments, to come and and take part in the mission of God, to see people come to know Jesus, to be a proclaimer of all of that. And you can do that no matter your status. Slave or free man, young, old, male, female, that's what the Bible is saying, that God is using everybody so if you found yourself maybe working the job that you don't like or you're in a position that you didn't think you were going to be in when you were a little boy or a little girl, you thought to yourself one day when I grew up, I want to be this, and maybe things haven't panned out the way that you want them to. I want you to be a little careful because right now, particular with my generation in particular, there is this movement That has said, the workplace is where you will find your identity. The workplace is where you will find all your joy and all your happiness. And we're even being told, and if you're not being really, really fulfilled at your current job, quit and go get a job for yourself. That's going to make you, listen, that's great when it works out. There are times it doesn't work out. What are you going to do then? Some people, yeah, you're really blessed. You are just like really, really smart. You're just like really, really talented. And you get to read those self-help books and you can do it. I think they're still empty when they hit the pillow at night because that can't fulfill you. That can't do it. But man, listen, I worked for five years on a night shift loading trucks. And there were times, and this is no joke, I would have to remind myself Well, God, at least when I'm done doing this, I don't go to hell when I die. (laughs) That was, like, the best thing I could tell myself. But I'm so thankful now for having that job and working it because it taught me resilience. Because life isn't always comfortable or easy. You can't always change your circumstance. And Paul is writing to people that just don't have the power to say, I'm going to go and do it myself. Like, they're under this contract. This is their, This is what's happening. And he's saying, listen, that's not your identity. That's not who you are. Isn't this wonderful? This is so wonderful. You're in Jesus. You're a son of the Most High King. You're a royalty. And it's going to manifest one day when he comes back. And you find yourself, and you're in that position, you're in that world, Just remember, hope is not found in your circumstance. Hope isn't found even inside you. Hope is found when we look outside of ourselves and outside of our world to the God who created our world. That's where hope is found. And that will never let you down, and that will never fail you. This world is filled with trouble and filled with disappointment, but Jesus never fails, and he will never disappoint. So that's my prayer, that's my hope for you as we look into the life of bond servants, we look at what it looks like to glorify God in our submission, that we would look and we would say, oh, praise God, none of this defines me. Jesus defines me. Let's pray. Father, help us to learn from these passages of scripture today. Help us to embrace them, to embody them, to grow in submission, to be changed by you, Lord Jesus.